ho, ho, hello, and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Scott, now I have a machine gun. Ho, ho, ho. Oh, wait. I think I, I think I took a quote from the wrong Bruce Willis Christmas movie. Uh, anyways. Anyway, moving swiftly on. Yes, <laughs> it is the festive season. Happy holidays to you all. And continuing our tradition, we have a Christmas spy movie lined up for you. But before we get there, we have to induct our next round of spy hards, diehards. Now, how does one become a spy hards, diehard? I hear you all shout at us. Cam, can you shed some festive light on that question? Yes, of course. The way to make the Spy Hards Die Hards list, which is even better than the knock list. That's right. Whoa, it is. I didn't sign off on that. <laughs> it's like second to the knock list, surely. <laughs> it's better than the disavowed list. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. No slide whistles are in your future. That's true. Yes, is to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world how much you enjoy Spy Hards and then send us that review so that we can read it on the air. Now, we have a notification system set up now, so wherever in the world you leave the five-star review on Apple Podcasts, we are notified and we get to read it. And so this one is coming from the United States of America via the account Almost Forever. Very mysterious username. We don't know who you are, but we, uh, mm. we love this review. So here it goes. Spy hards, die hards. Oh, they wanted to be in the club. You're in. Don't you worry about it. Almost forever. You haven't got to wait for forever. It's now. Scott and Cam. I like to put it in the right order. Thank you. Hey. Put. Well, I, hey, I start the show. Put on a great podcast that feels conversational while still being organized. And they also introduced me to some new spy movies. So that's always a plus. You're welcome for Lancer Spy. Oh, yes. British agent. <laughs> Oh, you're very welcome, sir. <laughs> or ma'am, or whoever you may be. But there you are. Welcome to... I guess you are a festive inductee to mm, the Spy Hards, right. Die Hards. Um, ho, ho, ho. And welcome aboard. But uh, if you do want to get in there, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We'll get notified and we'll read it out on the show. As long as it's a five-star review, write whatever you'd like inside. Make a joke if you'd like. It'd probably be funny when we read it out. Uh, and if you want to support us even more, you can join us over on our Patreon. We have over 50 bonus episodes there. Patreon.com slash spyhards, or you can find the link in the show notes below. But Cam, people have been waiting to unwrap this present. Let's get to the review. All right, it's time. Let's unwrap the present, Cam. What are we talking about this week? Yippee Kaye, we are talking about Whoa, deja vu. <laughs> we are talking about 2010's Red, starring Bruce Willis, Morgan Freeman, John Malkovich. Can run out of names, but there's lots more. There's a lot there. Yes, there are so many there. Uh, He's overwhelmed by the names of people. They're not even that... like, listed in alphabetical order. Now, listeners, crazy. Cam is the person who prepares all the notes for the show. Clearly. He hasn't prepared. He's been drinking a bit too much eggnog. Helen Mirren. <laughs> <laughs> hey, she she didn't she win an Oscar for playing the Queen? She did indeed. Yes. And then she did this. Yes. That's right. Yes. So there is a star-studded cast 
working alongside Bruce Willis in red, a spy action thriller. <laughs> this sounds like the hallucination of a lunatic. I've had a bit too much uh, eggnog, folks. I just made that joke. What are you doing? <laughs> I just said that. The Spy Hearts office Christmas party has been a real rager, folks. I apologize. <laughs> Cam's the one in the corner been, you know, drinking the punch bowl, apparently. Uh, he's, feeling, he's feeling a little frisky this Christmas time. I'll be crying in uh, mere moments. Well, we haven't even got to the review yet. No, but you're right, Cam. It is a massive cast, and it, it's um, it's a film that we've been asked to cover a couple of times, but it's not one that looms particularly large in the sort of pantheon of spy movies, I would say. No. No, that's true. Nor Christmas movies. No. Uh, in fact, it took us a little bit of time to realize that this was a viable Christmas option. No, we put out a post recently on social media and uh, were prompted to remember that this actually, and it does open with Christmas and close with Christmas. Like there's a, there's enough Christmas in here to justify its inclusion in the spy Christmas film pantheon. I've used the word pantheon twice in five minutes. That's your bingo card for you. Um, but if you've never seen Red, here is your synopsis. And you'll be uh, pleased to know it's brief. Oh, okay. Red, still armed. Still dangerous, still got it. When his peaceful life is threatened by a high-tech assassin, former Black Ops agent Frank Moses reassembles his old team in a last-ditch effort to survive and uncover his assailants. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yippee-ki-yay. Yeah. What, what more can be said, really, about Red? And that was your review, everyone. Thanks for <laughs> tuning in. We'll see you next year. Um, well, the, the next question we'd like to bring up is previous connections to the to the film. I mean, this is one of those rarities I'd seen before we'd even started doing Spy Hards. I remember just sort of being taken aback by the trailer for this film. I'm not necessarily sure I saw it in theaters, oh, okay. but I remember seeing the trailer and seeing Bruce Willis step out of the car whilst it was spinning and being like, wow, that's uh, I know this is mostly effects, but that's still pretty cool. I feel like that was a thing that happened in a lot of movies around that time. Did not Angelina Jolie do the same thing in Wanted? I feel like that was kind of a trend for a while, was people stepping out of moving cars. If that's true, I haven't seen Wanted. I know. I know. So for me, it's a Bruce Willis move. Okay. I, I feel like maybe Tom Cruise did it in Jack Reacher, maybe too. I can't answer that point, Cam, because I haven't seen that either. But hey, let us know, folks. Who, who stepped out of a moving car first? And uh, probably the answer is Buster Keaton, but still. Well, that's did they have cars then? I was going to say, <laughs> they they, did, I'm they pretty did, sure they did actually have cars at that point. <laughs> God, what is Cam drinking? <laughs> they did, although they wouldn't go at the speeds to really like um, accommodate <laughs> the excitement that comes from seeing, you know, say Bruce Willis do it. Five mile an hour and he just sort of like saunters out. Oh, what a stunt. <laughs> <laughs> the like, Whoa. It's like, butt, 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 butt. It's like the, uh, it's like the oyster mobile in uh, Live and Let Die. Oyster mobile? Yeah, remember the old man driving the oyster truck down the road? No, that's gone from my head. Oh, well, there you go. That's a, that's a deep cut for the Bond fans out there. Something to look forward to when we get to live and let die. I'll keep my eye out for the oyster car. But what about you, Cam? Like, had you, I'm assuming you've probably seen this in theaters, but had you seen it before? Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw this one in theaters. And actually, lots of movies I can remember the experience of seeing the movie. But I remember uh -huh. the entire day of going to see the movie Red. Oh. It was one of the most momentous moments in my entire life. Uh, oh, no, boy. not really. But it Where's was this going. 
it was when I was in journalism school, uh-huh. and the day that I went to that movie, I was actually covering a um, Michael Jackson thriller flash mob in Vancouver, and it was a worldwide thing, but I went to the Vancouver one to cover it for our, our school paper. It was part of my assignment for the program, and I remember being there for a big chunk of the day. A uh, friend of the show, Tyler Orton, who was on our Diamonds Are Forever episode, came to join me at a certain time just to observe the uh, experience and whatever. And then him and I went and saw Red uh, that afternoon. And so, uh, yeah, my, that is my memory of the movie Red. And um, that is my memory of the movie Red. <laughs> uh, like, you, you're saying you didn't moonwalk your way out of the theater afterwards? I, I, I think we both walked out going like, yeah, that was fun. But... I got to be honest with you, when I sat down to watch it the other night, mm. I remembered almost nothing. Like, it was like watching a movie for the first time. I, I had a similar experience. And one of my first notes, and then something I looped back to at the end, is I'd forgotten how much of a Bruce Willis film this was. Right. I had a memory of it being an ensemble piece, which it becomes by the end. But really, it's a two-hander with Bruce Willis and um, Mary Louise Parker. Yes, what I really remembered most of all was um, Helen Mirren with the machine gun, because that was like in all the trailers. Sure. They really marketed the heck out of that. And then also John Malkovich, I think maybe the moment where he like leaps out or something. I think that was also in the trailers a lot. I mean, this film revolves around John Malkovich being unhinged, so I'm here for it. Like he was kind of like trailer bait, right? Like because you have those really wacky, broad... Um, John Malkovich moments, and they're very easy to fit into trailers if you're trying to sell the kind of the goofiness of the movie. Yeah, which I I imagine they were leaning on. I just remember that bit with the car because that's probably the the one of the one of the key stunts of the film. And it's funny because I did not remember that. Oh, ah, okay. Well, well, we'll get into our experience of that, but uh, I'm curious to know because this is a film, this is a franchise we're starting here. We're going to tackle Red Two down the line, but we need to track the genesis of it. Where did the Red franchise come from? It actually came from a graphic novel. Or okay. three-issue uh, comic series that was put together into a graphic novel, but they always say later on, based on the graphic novel. So it was uh, written by Warren Ellis, who is a pretty, pretty reputable writer in the world of comics. And, you know, in terms of, like, the stuff people may have heard of, mm. he wrote the Iron Man Extremis arc, which became Iron Man 3, was adapted into the Iron Man 3 film. elements of it and he also worked on moon knight and he was the one that kind of relaunched that character into the version that was made into the marvel tv show the tv show was nowhere near as good as his comic book work but that's when it kind of moon knight suddenly found a place in sort of um modern day comics he was someone who felt a little archaic leading into that okay cool so he he had some sway going into this and was the comic book well received or was it kind of that at that point where like studios were just buying comic books to turn them into potential projects oh we'll get to that we'll get to that i'll 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 sit back sorry sorry yes and and i should say red the art was done by cully hamner who is a also just war horse of a comic artist you go through he's worked on like every major book just one of the big talents in art in comics and so this comic was put out through kind of DC Comics has an imprint called Homage Comics, which works through Wildstorm. It's kind of a convoluted thing, but it basically came out under an imprint called Homage Comics, ultimately owned by DC Comics, though. 
sure. sort of, you know, different umbrellas here just to, be, to differentiate it because the content in it was much more darker and hard-boiled, not the sort of thing that necessarily belongs next to Superman on the shelf, for example. Okay. Well, that makes sense. You know, even movie studios do the same thing. You've got, yeah. like, Searchlight or whatever it is is a division of someone. Exactly. Can't remember. Yeah, there's lots of stuff like that. That makes sense. That tracks. Yeah, Disney has Touchstone and what have you. Yeah. So, uh, exec producer of this film, Red, uh, Gregory Novick, became a big fan of this comic story. And he was working for DC as kind of like their Hollywood Wheeler dealer. His job was to basically interest them in projects. You know, get Warner Brothers to make, like, say, Batman films or whatever else. He would pitch ideas to them based on their characters. Watchmen, stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And he really believed in this graphic novel. It was a very simple, hard-boiled graphic novel. I read the synopsis of it. It takes little... This movie takes little bits of it. Um, but really, it is very different. It is much more of just a hard-edged story that's quite simple. Um, it does not have this big supporting cast. A lot of those things are all new additions for the script. So it was very much like a... We kind of like this throwback to you know, noir storytelling, this could be a really cool movie. That's kind of how it started. Kind of like Men in Black is a bit outlandish, and but very down-to-earth, pardon the pun. And then yeah. it gets turned into this fantastical film with Will Smith. Exactly. That's a great comparison, yeah. And so Novick went to, to Warner Brothers, and uh, they just were not interested. Mm -hmm. And it was the lack of superheroes. They just were like, eh, this isn't really our thing. But this Zack Snyder guy, we love him. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Let's not talk about the DCEU. <laughs> uh -oh. um, and so the creators then, Warren Ellis and um, Cully Hamner, um, exercised an element of their contract, which was the right to shop it elsewhere if you know the Warner Brothers wasn't interested. Sure. And so that took actually years. Because what happened was... Warner Brothers was like, okay, we don't want to make the movie, but we've got to run this through all of our other divisions to see if there's anything in here that might work, for example, on TV. And so it took years to clear the rights for them to basically be able to sell Red to other studios. Many, <laughs> several years later, um, De Bonaventura Pictures was interested in the property, so they attached themselves. And Novick brought in writers to shape this, you know, fairly concise graphic novel into something that could be more of a mainstream entertainment. So when these pictures were being taken around originally to DC and DC's internal studios and things like that... It's Warner Brothers, because Warner Brothers owns DC. Oh, I'm sorry, Warner Brothers. I'm, yeah, sorry, Warner Brothers, you're right. Um, they're just pitching the comic book itself. They haven't done like a uh, some sort of a screenplay or they haven't done like a pitch document. It's just like, here are the comics. Do you want to do something with it? Yes or no? It's very much a DC guy going to the studios and saying, or to Warner Brothers, I should say, and saying, hey, this would make a great movie. What do you think? That sounds like a great job. Right? I wouldn't mind that I'm just going to go pick up all the comic books and be like, do you want this? No? Okay. This? No? Okay. That'll be 100 grand a year, please. And I'm sure uh, Gregory Novick makes more than a podcaster does. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Um. So they brought in writers, John and Eric Hober, uh, their brothers, and they started off their career with a 1998 Tarantino riff called Montana with Kira Sedgwick and Stanley Tucci. I have not seen this movie. Okay. Um, but 
a handful of years later, 2009, they did the movie Whiteout with Kate Beckinsale, uh, which was sort of a, I think, horror thriller, I think. It was mm-hmm. not particularly successful, but basically jumping off of that movie, they did Red. And since then, their career has been basically just big studio guys. They have written or worked on Battleship, uh, Meg and Meg 2, My Spy, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, and then, of course, Red 2. You you led us off on a bad path there when you said uh, Battleship, but you did bring it back down with Meg and Meg 2, which I know you're a big fan of. They're entertaining enough, yes. But I should note, like, a lot of these movies that I just named, uh, in fact, almost all of them, had, like, an army of writers on them. Battleship had, like, something like 27 writers on it. Uh, I believe Transformers Rise of the Beasts had a number of them as well. So, you know, they are very much like the studio is going to bring them in, but they're mm. probably going to be rewritten at some point. Isn't there like a limit the Writers Guild of America will allow to have names attached? There is. I mean, I don't, I would have to look up what that limit is, but you rarely would see more than, say, six on a finished film. I watched an episode of a science fiction show I shouldn't mention. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, recently, and I saw there was like teleplay by four people and then story by four other people. I was like, yeah. that is an insane amount of credits for a random episode of a TV show. I can only imagine what it's like on films, like especially with the Marvel films nowadays. Like, they have have a ton of hands, and that's even the ones that they acknowledge. Yeah, you're going to have your main writers, but there's like often writing rooms nowadays where maybe they get story credits and things like that. It gets very messy. Sure. Um, but yeah, so... These two brothers basically wrote Red and had to create a lot of the characters that are in the finished film. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Victoria, Joe, Marvin, uh, Frank are all kind of created because even the lead Bruce Willis character, his character's name was Paul uh, Moses in the book, and he was also just a completely different character. So a lot of this is pretty original material. Mm-hmm. Uh, they took very little, honestly. Okay, well, that that's fine. They, uh, there's a lot of times where concepts are taken and that's about it even like book adaptations do the same stuff i've no problem with that yeah you could actually say that almost like the graphic novel red is something even more akin to say like david fincher's the killer which is out pretty recently at the time of recording not so much in being the same story but just like that kind of stripped down genre exercise methodical yeah yeah okay I might I might pick it up, actually. I might try and see if I can pick this up between Red 1 and Red 2 and just have a read. It's about an agent who is decommissioned, who is sort of dragged back in by a hit squad and has to kind of, like, find out what's happened. So that's the nugget of the story that this film has, too, then. So there is that continuity. Okay. Yeah, it's not a comedy, though, at all, the graphic novel. And so that's kind of the difference. And it's also just much more kind of a straightforward thing. And in the book, I know also the name red just means that like at a certain point in the story, he goes from red to green, which mean green, you know, green is the target is back on him. Oh, so retired and extremely dangerous is made up for the film. I think it is. I would have to actually read the three issue story to see if it is ever specified. But when you read the synopses of the graphic novel, they just say that it's like he's red because it means like he's off limits. But when he goes, once he goes green, then, you know, the game is on. I mean, when I retire, I also intend to be branded red. But red means retired and extremely docile. 
<laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm here all year. Not bad. Not bad. That's how we should all be. So there was actually a quote from the graphic novel writer Warren Ellis during the period when Red was being turned into a script. And there was a quote that I found online. He said, Red the Red script. Not bad. Not the book, but not bad. Funny. Especially when you know the casting. Very tight piece of work. Talked to the producers last week. They're all kinds of giddy over the casting coups. Who wouldn't want to see Helen Mirren with a sniper rifle? What a what a gleaming endorsement. What a what a huge embrace of the script there. <laughs> I like it. It's very like shortened to the point. Um, I, I enjoyed that quote. And so basically they took the script then and pitched it all over town. Mm-hmm. And only one studio was interested, and that was Summit. And Summit was kind of an up-and-coming little studio. And like they were five months away at that point of releasing Twilight. Wow. So they weren't even okay. on the map yet. Whereas once Twilight comes out, Summit becomes a thing. And their logo means something. Mm. At this point in time, it doesn't. And so they were really into the DC branding of it. To them, it was like, this is great. If we can put something out that has DC comics on it, that actually help sell the movie the way that I'm sure say Netflix does picking up recently red alert uh, Star Trek prodigy. It's like they can market a Star Trek property under their own banner. Right. I I actually had a genuine anecdote about Star Trek and then I avoided it. And then you just dropped it for a Star Trek prodigy nod. I mean, Uh, we've done it. It's happened. There you go. Signal the alarm. Uh, No, but that that does make sense. And the the branding is important. I can't say I remember there seeing a, a, a DC logo at the start of the film. There is. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. And so Summit, though, because they're a new player in town, they were a little nervous about the funding, which was not mega budget, but it was still pretty expensive. And so they approached Warner Brothers for co-funding, but were turned down. Warner Brothers was like, no, we still don't want anything to do with this. They really don't (laughs) want it, do they? What scared them, especially at this point in time, was Jonah Hex and The Losers, both DC Comics adaptations that had been pretty significant bombs at the box office, which had basically taught them stick to superheroes. I remember Jonah Hex being a bomb. I remember absolutely nothing about The Losers. Which will tell you about its box office prospects. <laughs> Who was in it? Uh, Chris Evans was in it. Idris Elba. Oh, wow. Um, wow. Jason Patrick. Uh, there was a few. It's not bad, but I remember it like ended on a cliffhanger. And oh, so no. it's irrelevant. <laughs> it's a real dark universe. Yeah, it was a really unfortunate decision. Mm. So, yeah, at this point, though, in the process, you know, once Summit is pushing ahead, they hire Bruce Willis and Morgan Freeman, and then they hire the director. So, actually, Bruce Willis and Freeman were attached before they even had a director. And for the director, they got Robert Schwentke, who was a German-born director, um, whose initial 1993 effort, Heaven, um, what came out it was not well reviewed so it was a few years before he got something else going and he kind of found his feet in german tv working on a cop show called tatort i'm not going to try to pronounce it correctly because i don't know how uh but he doesn't care he... folks german listeners <laughs> write in and just slam cam's pronunciation i think my accent work has been proven time and time again on this podcast to be very poor so i'm not even going to try to nail it at least he didn't do that, actually. Let's be fair. That's the true Christmas gift we've received, is Cam not doing a German accent. That's right. So Schwenke did a couple more movies in Germany, Tattoo, and another one I'm not going to try to name because it's a complicated word. 
but he found like his place in Hollywood in 2005. He did the Jodie Foster film Flight Plan, and then he went off and did the Eric Banya, Rachel McAdams film The Time Traveler's Wife, and that kind of established him as someone who could work with in the studio, and that led right into Red. I've seen The Time Traveler's Wife, so I remember that being rather nice sort of rom-com affair, not comedy, but like, you know what I mean. Yeah, I saw it, I think it was okay. Uh, I know people yeah. who read the book said it was a real disappointment, but I hadn't read the book, so it didn't mean anything to me. I always get that one mixed up with the other one that I think Rachel McAdams is in. The Notebook? With... <sighs> No, what's the other one with like a time traveling boyfriend? It's got the guy from um In Time. No, in time. that's not it. That's what that's no, that's what Justin Timberlake. About time. About time. Is that Rachel McAdams as well? I think it is. Wow. She loves time traveling boyfriends. Apparently I never made that connection. Good job, Scott. Um, me. And Flight Plan, a little bit of a spy connection, is sort of a loose remake of The Lady Vanishes, the Hitchcock spy thriller. Oh, is there anything spy-worthy in it that we're going to look at? Or is it contextually changed, like it's not about it? Yeah, they changed the context, but kind of the idea of someone going missing in a confined mode of travel, that's kind of the same part. Okay. And they kind of spin it off from there. I mean, there's probably more places you could hide someone on a train than a plane. Yeah. Uh, that, that probably has a shorter runtime. I remember the twist for, like, flight plan was very poor. That's to the best of my memory. The, the twist is there's a second plane. <laughs> underneath the whole time upside they had down a cable it was like cliffhanger they had the cable and they were <laughs> shimmying <Yeah>. back and forth <laughs> what a twist since then Schwenke though really has not had the best of luck because he did r.i.p.d which was that like quite expensive ryan reynolds kind of men in black with the supernatural riff with jeff bridges that was like a real bomb it got the same treatment that uh, the cowboys and aliens did which is something we covered on the patreon recently like high concept big cast terrible reception yeah and then he went and did insurgent and allegiant the two sequels to divergent and i remember allegiant was such a dud they didn't even make the final film in the franchise and then he did snake eyes the gi joe origins film Oof. which is kind of a spy film i think yeah god i hope not but uh i'd have to revisit uh the wikipedia on that one <laughs> uh, yeah cam's not gonna revisit the film he'll look at the wikipedia page yeah so um yeah, he's gone back and he's still doing movies in his, you know, German films and whatever. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. Like, it just seems like he's someone who, if you give him decent material, clicks. But let's be honest. Uh, the scripts for um, R.I.P.D. and Snake Eyes are not strong. No, and if you're a director at that sort of level, you're not getting the sort of power to be, I'm not going to do this script and we're not going to do that script and we're going to do this one. You're working for a studio and you're basically saying, you're not going to get a job or you're going to do this script. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's not an insane thing to me to take, say, Snake Eyes. It's like mm -hmm. a major franchise offering you a movie that's basically like kind of a reboot. Yeah. If it succeeds, then you're in pretty good standing, right? That's you. That's you for two sequels. Exactly. Or at yeah. least to have like exec producer status for two sequels and get some money that way. Yeah. Yeah. And so shortly after, you know, they have a director, they're also finalizing their casting. Uh huh. John C. Riley has been in discussions to play the Marvin role, and he falls out fairly close to production from discussions, and so John Malkovich was the last member added to the principal cast shortly before production. I don't want to imagine that film. Really? I think that might actually be fun. I'm not, I'm not a big John C. Riley guy. 
Mm, I'd say okay. never quite worked for me. Even like Step Brothers doesn't really work for me too much, despite having two Step Brothers. Uh, no, I, I, I think uh, what we ended up with is the proper version. Well, it makes more sense if they're all re- retired, right? Like John C. Mc- yeah. uh, John C. Riley's a little too young. John C. McGinley, that's a different casting altogether. Yeah, I was gonna say McGinley. I was those two names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it'd be very more, much more regimental mm, mm. if you have McGinley in there. But yeah. Okay. Yes. No, I, I, I think uh, Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich is the Malkovich, Malkovich. <laughs> so this movie had a budget of fifty-eight million dollars. Domestically, it did ninety point three. International, one hundred eight point six for a worldwide total of one hundred ninety-nine million dollars. That's okay. Pretty good. Fifty-eight million million dollar budget. This movie was a hit. Yeah. It, it, you just you, you you struggle sometimes to think like, oh, it didn't make five hundred or or a billion or something. That oh, it's an absolute fail. But they're if only spending sixty million on this. You do that Hollywood math of doubling it to one twenty, and it gets two hundred. That's plus you at this point you add in like DVD sales and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Twenty ten. Yeah. Yeah. So probably doing all right for itself. Definitely. And landed at number 38 for the year between Yogi Bear and Paranormal Activity 2. Yogi Bear was a film? Yeah. Is it live action? Yeah. It has an amazing teaser poster that's like uh, one of the dirtiest jokes you could ever put on a kid's movie poster. And I'll never forget it. It made me laugh so hard. Anyone Google uh, Google that one. I'm, I'm, I'm vamping whilst I Google it. Yeah. It's the teaser poster. Is this the one with just the two bears next to each other? Yes. And what is the tagline? So you've got one bear in front of the other bear, Mm -hmm. and it says, great things come in bears. (laughs) Mm Mm-hmm. And this is a kid's film, folks. Uh Uh-huh. It was a choice. (laughs) Oh, right. I mean, and both bears seem very happy with this scenario, I have to say. (laughs) It's one heck of a picnic. <laughs> oh, we could go down that well, but we're not going to. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, the top three for the year, and we did these fairly recently because we talked about um, Cats and Dogs Two from 2010. But uh, number one was don't mention Cats and Dogs Two. <laughs> Toy Story Three. Number two was Alice in Wonderland, and number three was Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One. And just a couple final notes: This movie was nominated for the Golden Globes for Best Picture, Musical, or Comedy, and I was kind of surprised initially because Red was you know, decently reviewed, but I saw that Best Musical Comedy nomination, and I was like, really? What else was nominated? So I went and looked at the list. The Tourist, Burlesque, Alice in Wonderland, and The Kids Are All Right. Ooh, bit of a thin year. Slim, slim pickings that year. Actually, of all those, this has got a good chance of winning. What did win? The Kids Are All Right, which is a fantastic movie. Okay, I can't comment. Yeah, it was an Annette Benning, Mark Ruffalo uh, film. Very good. Okay, well then there you go. The right, the right film won. But interesting that it, the other ones didn't jump out to me either. Uh, no, the tourist is not a comedy, so <laughs> that's an interesting placement. <laughs> is it? It's not musical either, as far as I'm aware. No, no, that was like uh, one of those things where they just wanted stars to show up, so they nominated it. You know, it was a choice. It's like the year The Martian won Best Comedy at the Golden Globes. Is that a thing? Yeah, that did happen. The Martian won Best Comedy. Yeah. Did Matt Damon accept the award? I don't remember. It was probably the director. Maybe Ridley Scott or maybe the producer accepted it. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure Matt Damon would be running up the stage to uh, get the wrongly classified 
Emmy for his film or Grammy or whatever you said it was. Golden Globe. Emmy? Uh, whatever. Yeah. He got an EGOT for The Martian, apparently. <laughs> and just my final note. In 2015, they announced that they were developing a Red TV series for NBC. And nothing has been heard since. But you never know. Well, you know, like any good spy, they've been running for uh, eight years now. We just uh, are not able to watch it. Yeah. I was surprised when I did the research on this one, kind of like what a journey this property went through. Because to me, when I see the movie, I don't necessarily think to myself, like, I'm sure that this went through a lot of iterations and a lot of hard pitches to get made. Well, you may have already said this, but what was the exact or close to the date that the original pitch was made to Warner Brothers? I don't have a clue. Ah, I thought it was in your notes. I wonder how long that gestation period was. The initial one? Well, they had to clear all the rights, so it was several years. Mm. So maybe there was, at some point, potential of red coming out in, like, 2004? Possibly, yeah. Around the time of the Bournes in between the James Bond changeover, it could have been a very different film. Yeah, that would have made sense if you've got... I mean, it is kind of Bourne, right? Like, the whole... Mm-hmm. agent that has been kind of uh, not part of that world being dragged back in. Like, that's the kind of thing that would generate interest. Yeah, and you've also haven't had Taken at that point. You have by this point. So the idea of an older agent, an older actor coming and being the action star wasn't... I mean, it was a thing that was being done for a long time, but the, it, Taken was the thing that really pushed that type of film into popularity, I would say. That was really the the sort of watershed moment for those films so doing this in 2004 would have been quite revolutionary yeah and really repopularized the idea of kind of the older actor as action hero bruce willis had been doing action movies all along but yeah suddenly there was more of probably even more of a demand to have him headlining these things when you've got liam neeson and kevin costner and various others starring in these movies as well Hmm. but like having dame helen mirren running around in 2004 with a machine gun very different yeah, yeah. 2010, she's an Oscar winner and yeah. has much more of kind of a pop culture appeal. So there was like a real marketability to having Helen Mirren with that machine gun in those trailers. Well, so that's, yeah, I think that's the point where obviously, you know, she's won that and she's very much a known quantity in America. Obviously, mm-hmm. Helen Mirren's known to us here in Britain because she's British. So I don't know if it would attract as well in 2004. Has she done more as much back then? Well, she'd been a critical darling for decades and mm-hmm. like a very, very, very respected actress here. But I don't know that she was considered a star. Like, I don't think the average person necessarily knew who she was. Okay. Well, mate, to be fair, it could have been the case that they wouldn't have been cast the same if they'd done this in 2004. Could have been a very different film. Sure. We'll never know. But, uh, you know, Cam, do you, uh, do you smell gas? <laughs> I'm coming over a bit faint. No, I'm just kidding. But we need to take a look at this film, our festive film of the year 2023, Red. Let's get down to it. Cam, why don't you lead us off? What do you think of Red? Red is... That's the title. Interesting. Yeah. This may be the most mainstream movie that ever mainstreamed. Like, Mm. it feels to me almost like every element of it is just sanded down so that no human being could ever ever walk out of this movie feeling put off by anything in it it is just completely like by the numbers stuff where i was like it's funny but it's not too funny 
It has some, you know, violence, but it's never particularly tense or anything like that. Like, it's the kind of movie that you and I could sit and watch. My parents could sit and watch and be like, oh, that was cute. And you could probably show it to your kids as well if you had kids and it wouldn't be that bad either. No, like, you can look at, say, like, some of the more violent moments. For example, when they bat the explosive at the guy and he explodes, but it's done almost like a Looney Tunes cartoon. Yeah, there's no blood or anything. Like, it doesn't even feel particularly violent. No. no. So, like, this movie to me is almost, like, synthetic feeling. Okay. Even though I like a lot of the parts. And a movie I kept thinking about while I was watching it was um, The Whole Nine Yards. Do you remember that movie? The uh, Matthew... Uh, Perry, Perry, yeah, uh, Matthew Perry was in it, but Bruce Willis was the star of that one as well. Okay, yeah, and it was sort of like a silly hitman comedy mm-hmm. that had a supporting cast that was great. You had Michael Clark Duncan, you had Roseanne Arquette, you know Natasha Henstridge. You had a bunch of really capable actors around, you know Bruce Willis and Matthew Perry. Uh-huh. It wasn't particularly great, but it had some like fun vibes and people enjoyed it, and it produced a sequel that no one cared about. Maybe rings a bell. <laughs> oh, uh, you know, okay. I, I kept thinking about that movie watching this where it feels a little bit like a Bruce Willis kind of paycheck job to a certain degree. Like mm-hmm. it has like those elements, though, that I think make it fun. Like and it's the casting, you know, you have when you have like some of the best actors alive in the silly kind of trifle of a movie, it clicks like it is a lot of fun to watch. But there's a lot of story elements that I just thought. I've seen this done before in a way that was exciting to watch. And this movie is just giving me kind of the very blah version of it. But there was stuff I enjoyed. So I guess I'm mixed on it. Maybe I sound negative there, but like there's a lot I can talk about in terms of what I enjoyed. It just feels like a movie that honestly, if you ask me in like a year what I think of the movie Red, I'm going to be like, um, oh boy, I can remember the actors in it. It's interesting. Uh, for many reasons the one thing that jumps out to me is when i was writing my notes for this i usually have like four likes and four dislikes i try and split any film even the bad ones and the good ones i try and have dislikes and likes for everything i struggle to write four likes Mm. but if you were to ask me which you are because it's the show where we talk about the films do i like this film yes i think it's perfectly serviceable entertainment it hits its mark i mean it probably overstays its welcome a little bit for me at the two hour mark it could have been an hour and a half in my book yeah i think the sequels the sequels longer i think oh wow well I'll, we'll get to that in a minute we will we will but like it's absolutely fine this is a film that, i mean it's a 12a here in the uk you can basically take anyone to this film and it's it's a it's four quadrant i suppose as you're gonna get i, I think i'm understanding how four quadrants work but it's playing for everyone here mm-hmm the only reason why this works for me, really, when I dug into it, is the supporting characters. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of the leads, which I think I'm going to get into. But if it wasn't for John Malkovich and Helen Mirren, I think this would be a completely forgettable affair. But those two seem to elevate the material past whatever that script was, whatever the director was doing, whatever restrictions were in place by the, the, the leads of the film just to be very memorable. And everything I think I'm going to remember about this film is going to be things that they said or did. Even Brian Cox, who shows up for, you know, he has much less time on screen than, say, Malkovich or Mirren. But, like, 
you're bringing on an old pro and basically telling him have fun and he yeah. does and Ernest Borgnine showing up. I was going to say Ernest Borgnine. I didn't think I'd be writing notes about Ernest Borgnine in my red review, but he has yeah. two notes. Yeah, like he was fun. Yeah. And Morgan Freeman has very little to do, very sure. little to do in this movie, but like there's a moment where he's talking about having, you know, stage 4 cancer and mm -hmm. has this little moment where I'm suddenly like Morgan Freeman is just in this moment acting in like an Academy Award nominated performance. Like he is just like a gleam in his eyes. Yes. Like he, just, he just sort of comes through, it's doesn't he? It's crazy. I'm watching this yeah. very silly spy comedy and suddenly Morgan Freeman is just like gazing off into the horizon, contemplating an entire life lived. And I'm like drawn into watching this master of his craft perform. And I'm like, that's why you get Morgan Freeman to take this small role. Well, it's a human moment because he's like, you know, I, I didn't think my life would end up this way in this retirement home. I didn't think I would go out in this fashion. But, you know, hey, it's been fun. And you just think, oh, well, that's that's pretty real and raw. Ow. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, 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 it seems like we're kind of in simpatico there in, in sort of loving the, the supporting cast. Uh, but, yeah, in terms of my overall thoughts, like, yeah, I, I think this is this is entertaining this is not a film i'm going to turn my nose up at if someone if i'm at christmas dinner in a in a, in a you know a time of listening in a few days time and someone says hey what's on television and red happens to be on i'm not gonna be like oh no yeah turn that off i'm like okay there's things to enjoy there's things to watch i think some of the sequences are great which we'll get into there's lots of things to enjoy but there's also a lot of detractions, and so I want to get to that too. But let's let's focus on the joy, the festive joy of this film. What's something you want to highlight in terms of likes? Well, I mean, honestly, it's that cast. Yeah. And it is, I think, finding comedy in like the performances of John Malkovich and Helen Mirren. Those two in particular, I think, get the great stuff. And some of it's not even the world's greatest material. No? You look at like Malkovich, where like the gag is he's like hyper paranoid and has been someone who's on LSD for like 11 years or something like that. And he's completely whacked out. And they're giving him like silly props, like, oh, carry this stuffed pig around. And it's not like <laughs> the greatest of material, but you watch the way he commits to it. Yeah. And that he is finding like a real character in this. Like, it's actually fun to watch him bring this kooky individual to life. And he's consistent throughout. And every time he pops up, that performance is so defined. Uh -huh. I have watched so many blockbusters, for example, and especially in recent days, I'm thinking of some of the, say, the Marvel movies and things like that, where I'm seeing characters on screen for an extended period of time throughout the course of a movie who I don't even have a good sense of the personality of. Uh -huh. And, like, John Malkovich has that personality nailed his very first scene and that's something i really appreciate and helen mirren it's the same thing the joke is basically helen mirren with a machine gun but it works and it's mm -hmm. not the sort of like gag that only works once every time they bring her on she's like one of the best actresses like alive and so when you have her just you know sniping people and talking to mary louise parker about uh you know her relationship with bruce willis i'm like this works like she can sell this yeah, and she's gone on to do quite a few action films apart from the sequel, but like she's also in the fast films now yeah. for some reason. And she wasn't she a villain in a DC film recently? Oh yeah, that's right. I forgot she was the villain in Shazam too. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone forgot that film. They did, to be fair, yes. 
Yes, mm. I mean, I almost forgot uh, Shazam 2 as well. So I wonder mm. what made more money in the end, Red or Shazam 2? Uh, which made money would be Red 2. Or sorry, Red 1, I should say. Mm. Sorry, Zachary Levi. Uh, but I, I completely agree. And it's interesting, uh, another similarity, and it, the time is going to be off for this one, folks, because of us re-recording, uh, pre-recording things and uh, doing things out of schedule. But we recently recorded an episode for the Patreon on Die Hard 2, yeah. uh, sort of a Bruce Willis connection. And one thing we really loved about that film is it's just this fleshed out characters and these, like, this lived in world. And I think this film is very good at that too, and especially with the the names that we've mentioned, in giving them fully fleshed out characters with sometimes very little screen time. Morgan Freeman, like you mentioned, doesn't get a lot, but you understand exactly where he's coming from. And I think that's something that Die Hard Two does well, and this film does well as well. Yeah, and I actually think like too with Helen Mirren and the romance with Brian Cox's character, mm-hmm. the way they like set that up, that she you know was in love once and shot him three times because she yep. had to because for her job. And the way they connect that with Brian Cox later, I'm like, this is actually kind of like a touching, mature adult love story yeah. worked into this movie. Like, it's silly. It's having fun. But it works. Like, I, I just enjoy watching these two performers bounce off one another. Well, it's not played, like, for laughs. It's not played big. It's sort of subtle between the two actors. And they know exactly what film they're in. And they, they know what level to pitch that at. And the whole, like, three bullets thing works because it's show, don't tell. I know, I know Helen Mirren gives you the exposition that she shot her boyfriend in, three times in the chest. But she doesn't go, oh, I shot Brian Cox's character, blah, in the chest three times. And then he doesn't go, oh, I was shot by blah three times. They tell you the two bits of information and expect you to connect it in your head. And I appreciate that little bit of um, sort of a little bit of credit given to the audience to be able to put two and two together. Yeah. And it's like, it's like a kind of broad, silly movie, but Mm -hmm. they take that relationship seriously. And I enjoyed that. And actually, when you're talking about this movie, you tend to focus on all kind of your like major headliners, you know, you know, and um, Carl Urban in this movie, I actually think is very strong. And what I liked about that character was that he may have the most interesting character arc in the movie. He might. Mm -hmm. It's a a good argument, I think. And to see someone who, when he's set up, you're immediately going to think the Bourne supremacy. We've seen Carl Urban in this role, playing like an asset who has to hunt down your lead. And the way they have this character who has this kind of like awakening as to what is actually going on and over the course of the movie is conflicted. I found that actually interesting, the way that his home life informs his decisions. It felt like a character who had genuine conflict, and a lot of villains, especially in a movie like this, would be very silly or very simple. And I felt like they were actually kind of like putting in a little bit of extra work to make the Carl Urban character interesting. I mean, I I had an awakening when I saw Helen Mirren in that dress firing that (laughs) chain gun. I I never thought I could be so turned on, but uh, here we are. Well, true enough. And actually... Richard Dreyfus, very fun, one-note role. Tur- turned you on, did he? Uh, well, he didn't turn me on, <laughs> but uh, Richard Dreyfus, you know, it's kind of a one-note role playing this arms dealer, but yeah, chewing the scenery big time and a lot of fun. For sure. Um, one thing I wanted to highlight in the like section, I kind of briefly mentioned it earlier, is just some of the set pieces I think are quite good. I think the sort of house invasion at the start is pretty well done with like the bullets in the frying pan. There's just little touches of something different something cool that we've not necessarily seen much of before i mean a lot of the stuff is probably stolen from like bronson action flicks in the 70s and things like that i mentioned 
uh, I was talking to you about the mechanic earlier for some reason, but like stuff like that is probably balled into my head a little bit. But there's like a car chase where that sort of step out comes out, and there's the whole uh, when they're trying to abduct the vice president later on in the film in a, quite a protracted sequence throughout this whole building. It's all very well done, and I, I appreciate some good action and some good stunt work and some memorable sequences because a lot of this stuff we've seen it in some of our recent films, like Ghosted, can feel very generic it can just sort of all blend into one i mean ghost is probably a good example a bad example i should say because there was some good stuff in there but you know heart of stone is one i've watched recently that i i can't remember any sequence from that film whatsoever no i actually can't either and that movie is much more action driven even than ghosted yeah and uh boy it's all just gone now i mean we're going to revisit heart of stone i think in the new year so we'll see if uh (laughs) we feel differently but uh yeah even like the moment here where you have the face-off between that you know woman assassin and John Malkovich and it's like a duel and he has like a uh, magnum and she has a bazooka mm. and the moment you get the slow motion kind of bullet hitting the bazooka and you know blows her completely off screen you get the Robin Hood going into the arrow into the arrow yeah, thing. yeah yeah like there's some fun little bits and I think this movie does a good job in giving you kind of that um you know action you would expect in this type of genre piece in a way that feels heightened and kind of fun like it's like i said like you could show this to you know my parents or frankly anyone's parents and they would probably just find the vibe of it fun it feels like they did a very good job walking the line as to what they wanted this movie to be i i think it does sort of brush between trying to be a a very plotty spy thriller from times and then a wacky action film and i i think the tone doesn't always quite mesh for me personally which mm. maybe i'll get into but i i know what you mean it, it does all feel quite heightened uh but i i think it also wants to have sort of a you know no way out or tenet level of plot complexity when i don't think the film necessarily calls for that memo to future spy movie makers if you're making something like a red you know it's very light and frothy you do not have to have a convoluted plot <laughs> No, and I remember we had an episode a while back where I proposed a scale in which we could measure things in terms of plot complications and just how like complex it is. Um, and the suggestion we had, I think the one that won in my mind was a tenetometer. I'm not going to try to say that. <laughs> tenetometer, tenetometer, tenetometer. Look at me go. That's there you pretty go. good. Yeah, but on the tenetometer, this film is, is more tenet than it is Spy Kids 3. Right. I would say like we have to have on this meter probably one to five. I think that's a good gauge. Okay. So you don't want to go full tenet, which is a five. That is a five. I would say uh, that this is maybe like a, it's a two or a three, I'd say. I'd say it's more, it's trying to be a four in terms of its complexity. I'm not saying I was overly, I didn't find it overly complicated. I found it, it tried to be overly complicated. It feels like a movie that feels like it has to like, really be convoluted because so many spy movies are but spy movies have it it doesn't twist 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 it doesn't feel committed to a convoluted story like you're just kind of like jumping through hoops and doing this globe trotting thing i was like laughing as i was taking notes because whenever i'm taking notes and i'm watching a movie where they keep bouncing locations i'll just write the location name quickly Mm -hmm. in my notes and i was doing it like every three lines And you take a shot of eggnog every time they change locations of course that's why you're just all over the place now that's right but it was just like we are bouncing all over the place just to get like exposition to connect to the next location, even though all yeah. these locations are basically um, Toronto. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I was going to say back lot somewhere, but yeah, basically just uh, Canada, sure. Yeah, they did a bit of shooting in New Orleans, but uh, Toronto is the majority of the shooting. Okay. It, it did feel like they were actually in New Orleans. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Um, another uh, thing I wanted to call out in terms of likes, and I'll see if you have any more afterwards, is, um, I mean, there's a... I, at one point, I was like, there's a lot of plot holes here. Mm. There's, there's a lot of holes. This is like Swiss cheese. And then I realized I don't care. Yeah. It's entertaining enough where it doesn't bother me. And it's not, it, it doesn't like, and, that, and that's why the, maybe you're more right on the tenetometer scale being a two or a three, because it, you should just approach this film with an open mind and, and without sort of the, the critical hat on. It's just entertainment. There isn't much here in terms of like substance. Hmm. Which I I would take as a benefit. I I think that's an up because I can I could acknowledge it and just go into to have fun. Because if you if you approach this uber critical, I think you'll just be it's like pulling teeth. I think there's movies that do it better though. Like if I'm watching, oh, sure. say, like we haven't covered it on the show, but like Mr. and Mrs. Smith mm-hmm. is like much better at having momentum and just carrying you on this kind of like silly rom com spy thriller versus like this movie. You are like investigating a like dead reporter's like yeah information they had, and I'm just like, who is this? Isn't even a character. Who am I investigating at this point? We're going to see this character's mother, and there's this whole list. And wait, the massive like exposition drop in the library that takes like ten minutes. You just think, is this what your propulsive spy comedy needs? When you're tying it to the vice president, played by Julian McMahon. And I'm like, what are we doing? Like, this is so complex, but for no reason. Because it's not like when you get to the end and find out ultimately who is behind it all. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh my God. Like, what a revelation. Eh, you kind of get it once once Richard Dreyfus shows up as this like very scene-stealing kind of like, uh, you know, mustache-twirling villain. You're like, ah, this guy's probably the bad guy. Yeah. Uh, that that didn't take much of a, a twist in my head. Is, is there any other likes you you've got? I might have one more if not. No, I think that kind of sums up. I I would just say like in in general, it's just the vibe of it when it's like um not getting bogged down in plot stuff. It really does work. Like it just has a light breezy energy. And you were mentioning the kind of thing you could watch on TV. Here, um, you know, in North America, we had the uh, TBS station, uh, which was famous for playing movies over and over and over again. And so a lot of the movies I grew up with would be played ad nauseum on Mm -hmm. TBS and various channels like that. And at a different point in time, Red would have been played on that channel like once a week. We have similar channels. Sky Movies is the one that pops to head. Uh, Pops to head? Pops to mind, I should say. Who said the eggnog now? (laughs) Well, I've been drinking it whilst you were talking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Sky Movies. This is, I, I imagine, would have been a staple had Sky Movies been in sort of the way it was when I was growing up. It's a bit different now. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I'm quite surprised we spent so much time on the likes. I, I struggled writing them down, but it's obviously we found some things to love. It is a breezy diversion, um, which and, yeah, isn't maybe necessarily quite the bar they wanted to hit. I think they want you to walk out and be like, that movie was a blast. And I never felt that way, but it was um, it was a painless sit. For sure. And I, I didn't say much about it, but Carl Urban, I mean, much as the whole Born Supremacy is basically the same character for a good portion of this film until he takes a turn at the end to the good side, he is a, a bit of a powerhouse in here too. Like, I don't think I gave him enough love at the start. He is, he is carrying the weight of like 
the CIA behind him the entire time. He he's the one that's sort of pushing the plot forward on the other side of things. And you know, he's just come off of 2009 Star Trek. He's just done all the Lord of the Rings films. His star is is very much rising at this point, pretty high, I'd say, his profile. And uh, he does a lot with his screen time. I I really appreciate what Carl Urban does here. That was maybe my biggest surprise revisiting the movie was that I was quite impressed that Carl Urban had a villain that actually or antagonist more so who actually had like a defined arc and is actually intelligent and yeah and is, is given some time to be smart a lot of the movie feels like it's almost like a cartoon and his character doesn't like his character actually feels like a thinking person yeah for sure and i'll just add in terms of carl urban a little bit of a spy connection for everyone uh, in the film you see carl urban's house a couple of times where his family lives it's the same house that's used in the jackal from 1997 starring Bruce Willis. Good lord. <laughs> Good lord. <laughs> what a connection. That's crazy. Do you think Bruce Willis was aware of that when he saw the movie at the premiere? He's like, home sweet home. <laughs> I'm so glad I got to come back here. I bought that house with my jackal earnings. <laughs> <laughs> Richard Gere lives next door. <laughs> He's still doing that Irish accent. <laughs> I wish he'd stop. <laughs> We interrupt this program to bring you a special report. Attention, spy hards, die hards. Independent podcasting. Much like the spy game requires considerable resources, whether it's research, equipment, hosting, or of course, constructing a hidden moon base, we're putting out the call for your support. That's right, the Spy Hearts Patreon is the home to our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and The Debrief, where we activate our billion-dollar brains and predict how the spy movie news of today will shape tomorrow. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The crazy Christmas chaos continues as we are looking at the 1990 action movie sequel Die Hard 2, starring Bruce Willis. What happens when the same thing happens to the same guy twice? Is it just as fun? Find out. So accept your mission and hop in the Hellmobile today at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before Spectre agents intercept this broadcast, let's get back to the spy jinx. Okay, Cam, dislikes. I've got a couple of big ones, but I'd like you to lead us off. I don't understand the central relationship of this movie at all. It's bananas. So, okay, you have the setup. Bruce Willis, he's retired. He apparently lives in a place that is entirely turquoise-colored. This movie should have been called Turquoise, not Red, because turquoise is all over this movie. But that is a complete aside. So, <laughs> Interior decorator Cam is coming out here. He's feeling fruity after the eggnog. Okay. Anyways. The drapes are all wrong. Yeah. He calls this woman who handles like the pension funds for you know retired agents in the graphic mm -hmm. novel apparently it was just his handler his for, uh, former handler sure. which i thought okay. was interesting anyways um another side but they are setting up this kind of like rom-com between the two of them mm -hmm. once we get to them meeting up i don't understand anymore where he's like well i have to take you with me and kidnap you because they're going to come after you and i'm like wait this feels like a bit of a leap <laughs> feels like a bit of a leap in this scene because like i don't quite buy it it feels like a real like leap for this character who i assume bruce willis is an intelligent person but he comes across as like a lunatic because he shows up in her apartment like having packed her bags and everything and kidnaps her 
And I'm like, okay, like this doesn't work for me particularly, but in the world of very, very broad, goofy rom-coms, I'll go along with it. Sure. But her character is almost completely sidelined. Like once you bring in Malkovich and Mirren and all that, her character is just sitting on the sidelines, listening to exposition, getting kidnapped. And yet at the end, I'm supposed to buy that this was like a great love story. And I just don't think any of the love story works at all. You go back to basics with love stories. You need to have some sort of a chemistry between your two leads. And much as there's only about, I think, an eight-year difference between Bruce Willis and Mary Louise Parker. So it's not... I know Bruce Willis tends to look older than he is. Mm. Uh, but there wasn't a big difference between the two of them. Despite that, there was just nothing there. Yeah. And I've seen Mary Louise Parker play good roles. I've seen Mary Louise Parker frustrate the hell out of me in some roles in the past same could be said for bruce willis we mentioned the jackal hmm. uh and, and yet i've seen them both have good chemistry with other people right in love stories and that didn't feature here and so you haven't got that spark to go from but okay we could still have some witty repartee we could still have some good dialogue that's not there either and also as a premise the entire thing falls apart because okay let's just concede the film's uh, set up that they are going to try and kill her what's to stop her just going to the police station and say these guys are trying to kill me they're outside in the suv with machine guns could you protect me mm. and then she's protected well i mean these cia people seem pretty dangerous i'm sure they could uh you know mm. i don't know that i uh, would necessarily trust the police when i've got like carl urban and like the entire force of the cia after me yeah, but Carl Urban wouldn't allow her to be executed. No. Oh, maybe at the start of the movie, but I don't think as you get further in, yeah. No. And, you know, the, all, and I said to, like, there's plot holes that I could pick, but just, just accept it as it is. But the problem is, like, there is, there's meant to be this love story here, but it's built on a, a very shoddy premise. Mm. The fact that she would have any interest in this guy that's basically invaded her house uh, packed her bag for her, and then tied her up and taken her away. Yeah, it's uh, it's a little bit like Stockholm syndrome setting in here, and it gave me a vibe of a film that I've watched recently because we did a, a appearance on another show to talk about the film, but we haven't spoken about it here, which is Night and Day. Right. Yeah. Um, you got Tom Cruise whisking off Cameron Diaz on a spy adventure, and she's basically just pulled along. I think they're even like handcuffed together at one point, or something similar to that. And it, again, there's, luckily, there's way more chemistry between those two in that film, so that that kind of spark works a bit more, and the, you feel like there's a bit more of a give and take between the two of them. Whereas this feels very one-sided. Bruce Willis has all of the power in this situation the entire way through until she's basically, as you said, sidelined, and then any any sort of power she had in the film is gone because she's just sitting in a prison cell. And I wasn't a big fan of Ghosted by any stretch, but like Chris Evans and Anna Darmus are together on screen for the entire run of that movie. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing Chris Evans kind of come into his own over the course of the film. Whereas here, the problem is they kind of set it up almost like it would be like a romancing the stone kind of idea. I wrote like, that down. Yep. They go out of their way to establish that the Mary Louise Parker character, Sarah, is someone who like reads these novels, these kind of romance novels. Well, it's like true lies. Like she's she's, she's yeah. working in this boring office job and she's looking for 
excitement, adventure. She's reading these. I've heard it, heard it referred to as chiclet before, but you know it, and that's that's all fine. That's actually a really interesting premise, and True Lies does it really well as well as Romance in the Stone is probably the best premium article of that type of storytelling. But then she doesn't have that moment where she comes into her own and and like takes the adventure into her hands that happens in all of those films that we just mentioned. But this, she's just this sort of bystander. Well, it sets it up, you know, when you have her reading Love's Savage Secret, that this is... Originally the title of the show. <laughs> that this is somewhat her story. It's about someone mm-hmm. who finds her place in the world because she's fantasizing. She meets a real spy and Bruce Willis is looking for an excitement. It's about two people who are getting something out of each other that is going to take them somewhere in life that they would like to be. But suddenly you've got... Morgan Freeman, John Malkovich, Helen Mirren, Brian Cox, they're all like take like entering the picture and taking away most of the attention from this love affair. And yeah. so it's suddenly like Mary Louise Parker is standing there just watching very talented actors, you know, make jokes and whatever. And she doesn't really factor into the spy plot because you suddenly have like five characters more capable of helping Bruce Willis than her. So, yeah. but then, like, I, I, but there's other versions of this story where we would probably lament, and and again, we're mentioning Ghost. I don't know why, but like, we <laughs> lamented recent. that Chris it's recent. It's recent, yeah. We lamented when we spoke about Ghosted that Chris Evans became a super adept spy by the end of the film. Like it, it, it was too quick of a transformation. The True Lies TV show did the same thing, whereas the t- the movie, for instance, took its time, and she wasn't even a good spy by the end, but she just got lucky. Yeah. This film does the opposite of that by sidelining her. So in a way, we shouldn't be critiquing it because it's not made her a super spy by the end of the film. But I think there is a middle ground somewhere where she could maybe stumble in and help or something like that and and, and just have some agency at the end of the film. But because there are people better suited for all these missions, she is just pushed to one side because it's inconvenient to have her on the mission as a character. And to me, like the central story of Red is Bruce Willis and her, right? It's mm-hmm. about their relationship. And, and everything yeah. around it is kind of like orbiting around what this central story is. Yeah. And yet, when you get out of the movie, what do you remember? Nothing to do with that romance. No. Although, I, I mean, she had me on the back foot pretty quickly on when she said she was disappointed that he was bald. Oh, yeah, that must have stung, huh? <laughs> I took I, I took that to heart. I have to say, when I, you have that quote, I'm kind of like, that seems rather harsh when you are dealing with like mature adults dating, yeah. because like Bruce Willis is in his fifties. Like, this is not an unusual thing when you're dating in your fifties. You know what I mean? It happens to every guy, Cam. It Jeez. does, but like to, for her to say that at that age is like, lady, let's <laughs> let's be realistic. <laughs> No, I, I actually, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue that. I think you're allowed to have uh, things you like and don't like in a partner. That's absolutely fine. Sure, but I, I wouldn't throw something at someone that they can't help. Yeah, like she says it to his face. Like I, I would never pick on someone's height, for instance. Like I, you can't help being, you know, three foot tall, Cam. That's right. It's not your fault. But I would never judge you for it. <laughs> I was second place to play Napoleon in uh, the new Ridley Scott film. <laughs> You are our Christmas elf this year. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I am. And I'm sitting on a shelf right now. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> yes. What about you? What was a dislike for you? 
there's two things that popped to mind. One's a dislike and one's something I noted in like looking at reviews of this film and a, a bit of a controversy that was sort of hanging over the film at release. I don't know if you were aware of this at all. So maybe we'll talk about the controversy first. Okay. Apparently there was a bit of a controversy with Morgan Freeman's character. Now, I've never seen the sequel. I don't know if this gets retconned in the sequel, but they send Morgan Freeman out to get killed. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I thought you were going to say about the moment where he's just like staring at the nurse's butt. I was like, that's kind of weird. Uh, that's yeah. kind of just like an old man being an old man. I, that's fine. Yeah. But there was this, you know, they send two white guys, send a black guy out to get killed, which is a bit of a Hollywood trope. And it's it could have been anyone else. It could have been done differently. It didn't have to be set up in that way. Yada, yada, yada. Totally get that. And I just, I don't know if you were aware of that controversy at all and if you had any thoughts about it. Personally, it didn't, didn't jump out at me, but maybe it's just not because I'm not affected by that. I don't know. No, yeah, it's funny because as soon as you say it, you're like, yeah, it is a very bizarre creative choice to make. Um, and even in 2010, that would have been a bizarre choice to make. And I wasn't aware of the controversy because it's been so long since I remember anything. <laughs> you know, involving other people talking about red, but um, I just wondered if it come up in your research or anything like that because no. there was there's articles written about it. Like I, there, there was some coverage when the film came out. People were saying, "Well, why did they send Morgan Freeman out?" I mean, it was because he had stage four cancer. It was that they set it up in the story as to why it was nothing to do with him as a person. But yeah, you make the choice when you cast the actor, though, that you may sometimes have to pivot because it does look weird. Yeah, I I was honestly more taken aback ultimately by how unceremonious his exit from the movie was. Sure. Like, I thought that was so poorly done that that jumped out to me more. I was like, really? Like, that's how you're dispatching, like, one of your primary characters? Like, okay, I guess. Maybe it was just put in as, like, shock value. Like, oh, characters can die. Yeah. Which is, it's a screenwriting trick all the time to give some stakes to the story. Does it feel weird, though, when you watch that scene, like that feels like a moment of real world violence in comparison to like, I don't know, people like using like a bazooka as like a baseball bat and hitting an explosion at someone like that stuff's very cartoony in contrast to that scene. Well, it, it's not the thing I was going to mention in terms of dislikes, but there is a tone issue with this film. Mm. Like it is playing fast and loose. Like I said, it was trying to have a deep spy story, but at the same time, it wants to be like Looney Tunes at times with its like explosions and, and combat sequences. So, yeah, I guess it is a bit of a weird mesh of having him die in this sort of tragic way. Was it ever actually figured out who shot him, by the way? Uh, I don't remember. No. I think it was just like a hit squad, wasn't it? Yeah, but there's never like... It was like called in by the CIA, a lady or something like that. Like it was never actually established or attributed to anyone. I don't think so. Strange, but yeah, I, I, I again, it didn't jump out to me watching the film. It was just me reading about it afterwards. And you know, if you guys have any thoughts about it, let us know. If you think it was a a bad choice, a, a choice, or you didn't really care for it, mm. uh, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts. It's a bit of an interesting. A, a bit of controversy, a bit of discussion that had happened around the film. Uh, yeah, which is which is interesting for a movie that is going out of its way to <laughs> and be incredibly sanitized and also inclusive in many ways. You know, you're getting these older action stars giving them opportunities in, in action films they wouldn't really have anymore. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But in terms of the actual dislike I had, uh, it's it's Bruce Willis. Mm. It's a real shame 
and you know bless his cotton socks i watched a video of him the other day at the time of making this and you know he's having a lot of trouble now and he he, he spoke some words on i think a tiktok video for his family and he's struggling yeah and he's given us so much in terms of in terms of acting in terms of film philanthropy he's done a lot bruce uh, a lot of time for him in this film however he is at the wrong gear i've seen him play wacky i've seen him play play it straight in a drama i felt like he thought he was in more of a drama this film than the lunacy that i think his character should have been going more towards it felt like he should have been winking more at the camera a la die hard or something like that whereas this i don't know he feels very grounded in a film that isn't i wonder if he felt he needed to be grounded because he was surrounded by such like broad characters around him like he had to be kind of the the gravity of the movie it's possible um but he also becomes then not particularly fun. Yeah, that this is where I got hung up. To watch, like you're waiting for the other characters, which is why I was saying, like, you know, I'm saying, like, you don't care about the relationship at the core of the movie, mm-hmm. but he's fifty percent of that, and yeah, that character is not as much fun to watch. I'm not dumping that all on her. That's both of them. Yeah, that's that's that lack of chemistry, and I think that's both. I think I actually think Mary Louise Parker's approach to the film is right. She's doing a lot of like eye rolls, and she's a really good face actor. Yeah, if you've ever noticed that, she's really good at expressions, mm-hmm. uh, which I've I've noticed in the past. She's got a really good scowl, but the script lets her down. Whereas I think the script is there for Bruce, he lets that script down. I feel like I need to like revise like my thoughts as to Bruce Willis over the past, you know, many years of his stardom. Like mm. when you get towards the kind of the later days of it, because. Th- for a long time, we were just completely baffled when there was all those, you know, terrible straight-to-video movies and stuff. Yeah. And there was that whole era where people would just talk about Bruce Willis is just showing up and phoning it in. Mm-hmm. And you'd see, you know, him show up in, like, G.I. Joe Retaliation and other things. And he just seemed so... three or whatever it was. Yeah. And he would seem so bored. But now you have to sit there and go, well, wait a second. Was he having early glimmers of, you know, obviously the issues he's dealing with now? Yeah. I have no idea. Only him and his doctor and family would know such a thing but this is kind of the era around this time where people are starting to notice bruce willis seems bored in a lot of these movies he doesn't seem to be bringing like the kind of the bruce willis energy we love so much in this movie and i mean he did moonrise kingdom around this point so like you could see him really engaged in that film Mm -hmm. but i think like i don't know maybe once you've made like a billion of these action movies and you're doing another one, you're like, eh, yeah. But maybe that means he shouldn't have been doing this movie in the first place. Especially, like, if you want to have a romance, you want to have two actors that click. And I don't even know if he was that interested in the material. I don't know. I also wonder, is he too young for this movie? Because everyone around him, in terms of the previous co-workers, are all older. Malkovich, Helen Mirren, mm-hmm. Morgan Freeman, they're older. Ernest Borgnine is way up there. And Bruce Willis looks like a kind of a young kid compared to them in a lot of the time. Well, they call him kid, which is hilarious. The concept of Morgan Freeman calling uh, Bruce Willis kid. Yeah. Well, I know there is actually an age difference there, but in my head, they both just are older statesmen. Yeah, that's what I would have thought. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, I would be very curious to go back in time and see like what a 1990s version of like Bruce Willis doing something like this would feel like. 
or what the 2004 version of this film was with a different cast. I'd be interested to see that too. Yeah. And, it, you know, you that's one of the things, like, I think the premise here, I think is actually really cool. The whole idea of these, like, ex-spies have retired and gone on to make, try and make lives for themselves because being a spy can basically ruin your entire existence. Um, you, you don't get to have ties. You don't get to have a family. You don't get to settle down. You just make enemies around the world the entire time. And if you make it to retirement, it's a hard transition, I imagine. You see that a lot with like military folks transitioning into civvy life, as they call it. Um, it can be tough. And and there's there's a very serious story there. There's also a great comedy there, if you wanted it. Um, but I just think Bruce doesn't either doesn't engage with the material or just wasn't invested in this film or, or didn't know how to play it the right way, for me, at least. I can't say you all felt the same. You may felt he was... You know, pitch perfect for what this film needed to be. I just felt like the most interesting thing should be your lead. Yeah, it's one of those films where the people around the lead are more interesting. I always, in terms of spy movies, I go back to Gotcha a lot. Linda Fiorentino stole that film from Anthony Edwards, but she's a secondary character. Well, I think back to the whole Nine Yards, which I referenced earlier. Not a great movie, but he is like star power personified in that movie. Like he is just like the magnetic core of that movie and like every character you understand why they're so kind of drawn to him and i think there's supposed to be an element of that here sure but i don't think it's there it's not on screen no we have more chemistry than bruce willis <laughs> and mary louise parker so it seems um i'll see you under the mistletoe yeah i i, I dislike i want to throw out there as well before we kind of get to the end of this section it's just this movie has a lot of action it mm-hmm. has a lot of like chases and things like that. Sure. There is almost no tension in this entire movie. And I found that to be the kind of thing that I don't really care when I'm watching kind of Malkovich have a duel. Like that's kind of like silly stuff. When you're keeping it kind of a like a comedic and broad stuff, mm-hmm. that's fun. Like I'm totally fine with that. But like there's the whole sequence where they break into the CIA headquarters. Yeah. Which uh, could not have less tension if they tried. It feels like you can basically just walk right in. Well, just put that up against Mission Impossible 1. Breaking into Langley. Yeah, it's the same. They they both like escape where they're like playing firefighters. Yeah. I, I wrote that down in my notes. Put play those side side by side and one is exceedingly tense. Like it so much so that you sweat when you watch um, Tom Cruise hang from that ceiling with Jean Renault. I I don't think I could tell you anything that happens in the hijinks of getting out of Langley. Uh I apart from the costume change, funnily enough. In uh, in this film, no, like the in, the entire break into the uh, CIA should feel like a heist. It yeah. should feel like something could go wrong. Oh my god, we might be discovered. And especially when you have Mary Louise Parker going along for the ride, and you have her dealing with like the contacts, mm-hmm. you know, where they're in the elevator, that should like feel like there's some pressure, and there's just none. You don't feel anything. That did, I think, get one of my only laughs of the film, though, is when she drops the contact on the floor and is like, are you going to help the general find his contact? And they're like, oh, I guess. Yeah. Uh, that, that did get a giggle out of me. Do you put contacts in your mouth and then put them in people's eyes? I thought that was weird. I mean, I've got perfect twenty twenty vision, so I've never once even uh, had to wear contacts. And I actually have a phobia of people touching my eyes. I mean, I have good vision as well, thankfully. Um, but uh, Everything else is in pieces, but my vision. You're going to want these eyeballs, folks. You know, you've got the hit list in this movie. I have a laundry list of physical issues that 
continue to. We both hunched over microphones whilst like crying in pain. Yeah, they continue to multiply as I age. But um, yeah, I mean, I have worn contacts for Halloween costumes. Sure. Um, but when I saw her like pick that up, put it in her mouth, and then put it in his eye, I was like, oh, oh, I don't like that at all. Especially when it's been on the floor as well. Like, first of all, do you want to put that in your mouth? Ugh. And second of all, it's not going to clean it. So you've just got her mouth germs and floor germs in liquid in your eyeball. Yeah. Yeah. Not very sanitary. No. Um, I- I'm sure he woke up with pink eye. <laughs> so, well, you had red. The sequel should have been pink where he has like one pink eye the whole movie. Yeah, uh, maybe not the best film. Or maybe I should have called it Red Eye. But either way, <laughs> uh, let's just go over to sort of final notes. I've got a couple of bits and bobs uh, beating around. One thing was uh, there's a moment in the film where a CD begins to skip like a vinyl record. Oh, okay. Which is, I okay, so CDs technically can skip, yeah, but not like that. And that was a very weird thing that jumped out at me. And I know I said don't you know put plot holes in it, poke out the holes in it. It's such a silly thing. They could have just had a vinyl record playing and it would have made perfect sense. But they had a CD mount, a wall-mounted CD player that started skipping like a vinyl. It's almost like in Batman Returns when they're playing the audio of Penguin putting down the people of Gotham live at the event. And then Batman like starts <laughs> scratching the CD like it's, a, like it's a record and it makes the sound, like the scratching effect. And you're like, have these people never listened to music on a CD before? <laughs> I don't actually remember that, but that that's outrageous. It's crazy. Really oh. crazy. Great movie, but crazy. It's actually my favorite of the Tim Burton Batmans. That is my favorite Christmas movie to go to every year. Wow. Have you ever dressed up? I, I mean, I know you learned to use the whip like Catwoman because of that film. Mm-hmm. That's true. Yes. Not like Indiana Jones. It's because of Catwoman. That is accurate, yeah, 100%. That's actually really impressive. If you ever get a chance... I'm not joking either, that's true. He's, yeah. he's not, folks. If if, his, if Cam has a video, I'll see if I can put a little bit of it online if you want to see I him don't. and his, uh, his whipping skills. All right, let us know. Write in spyhardspod at gmail.com. Do you want to see Cam whip? Is that your kink, <laughs> folks? Is that your Christmas <laughs> wish? You want to see Cam uh, get his whip out? Well, write in. Uh, another note I had is I just found the whole concept of... Um, what happens when you retire as a spy quite interesting and all those sort of different lives they've gone to live hmm. and it's uh I, I i actually think i would probably be john malkovich yeah okay i can see that i can see that i've got a little bit of a prepper thing anyway i've got a little bit of that bug i have a i guys i have a bug out bag <laughs> what see he doesn't even know preppers you're with me a bug out bag is basically a bag that you can grab in your house if you need to leave in an emergency. It's not like an overnight bag that's got some underwear in it. This has got a, a month's worth of medication in there, um, first aid kit, wind up radio, bits and bobs like that, band aid, uh, sort of you know, medical kit, stuff like that. I mean, I'm sure people have those here in North America, but I don't think they're called bug out bags. Um, I think they are. Yeah, I don't have one. I okay. don't have one. What are you grabbing in an emergency in your house? What are you running out with? The Star Wars collection. <laughs> My fingers! The <laughs> yeah. house is on fire, sir. But Obi-Wan! <laughs> Save my vintage yak face figure. Yeah. <laughs> the yak face! Yeah, okay. Blue snaggletooth! <laughs> you did it all for the snaggletooth. Okay, well, that's what you're grabbing. I'll be grabbing my bug out bag. And if I'm crazy, let me know, folks. Uh, what about you? Any, any notes, Cam? Just the note that it was interesting seeing Julian McMahon show up as the vice president. Sort of this cowering dude. 
And like that was the era where they were tr- still trying to make him like a, a film actor because you know you had the Fantastic Four films, mm-hmm. and those hadn't really clicked. And when he showed up, I was like, oh yeah, I remember when I used to see this guy in movies. It's been a while. I wasn't he in Nip Tuck. Yeah, that's where he got famous, and I maybe he's doing TV now. But uh, I think there would have been more of a moment of like, oh wow, Julian McMahon in 2010 when I saw the movie versus. You know, a lot of audiences now. I don't think anyone's ever said, whoa, man, Julian McMahon's here. Yeah, party time. I think in 2010, people would have been like, oh, my God, it's the guy from Nip Tuck versus now where you're just like, huh, I wonder if this plays anymore. Mm, I don't know. Nip Tuck fans, let us know. I've never I think I've just seen bits of that show. I've never really been into it. I've never seen it. No, you you probably should looking at you. Mm. Mm. Christmas is here, Scott. That's the present I'm looking for. That's it. That's it. Uh, I'll send it to you. Well, that's uh, that's my final question before we get to the knock list. We haven't really mentioned Christmas too much. This is our Christmas film of the year. How does this work as a Christmas film for you? Um, I think there's enough in terms of like you know decorations and just kind of like acknowledgement of Christmas to be kind of a very 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 low key christmas movie like i could see like tbs playing this around christmas sure but the fact that you and i had to actually like do the research to determine if this was a christmas movie before watching it means that it's mostly superficial i think it's about as much as the package is that has just some sort of settings as well there's no one's in christmas outfits or talking about christmas agreed and it's more so than say like the french connection true um which is our patreon christmas film of the year uh, apart yeah. from uh, Die Hard 2, which we're also covering on the Patreon, patreon.com slash spyhards, cheap plug. There it is. Uh, I think, uh, I mean, there's this whole thing in in North America. You don't really get it here of, of covering your houses in Christmas decorations outside. You do get it from house to house or tiny little things, but that seems to really go over the top over the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I'd be very much more Bruce Willis's vibe. Um, my parents go all out. I don't really do that, though, in my apartment. Do do you have any frontage you could decorate? Yeah, I actually do. I have a balcony I could, I suppose, but I don't. What are you putting out there if you could? I just don't want to. I'm, okay. I'm too tired, Scott. I just don't want to. <laughs> he's, uh, <laughs> he's, he is a Scrooge. This, he's our elf and our Scrooge. He's everything. No, but to answer that seriously, like if I had the money and the time and I was invested, I would do something like maybe like find large figures of like the Rankin-Bass, Rudolph, and Abominable Snowman characters or something. Okay, it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I, I I would do something overt and, and huge, but I am a spy, and I don't want to show off my location too much. Mm, yeah, that's... I don't want Santa to know where I live. Makes sense. He's coming after me. Well, okay, folks, knock list time. Red has two chances to get onto the knock list because it has two films in the franchise. The first one is up, and the question goes to you, Cam. Red, is it making the nice or naughty list this year? Red is not getting a green onto the knock list uh, for me. He's been planning that one all day. Um, (laughs) No, no. That is a momentary improv moment there. You can tell. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Uh, No, like, it's an amusing enough diversion, but, like, I just... Sure. This movie is not going to stick with me. And I think one of the key elements of the knock list is these are movies that are going to stick with you. And Red does not stick the landing there. And the disavowed list is also the same. It's going to stick with you for the wrong reasons. Sure, yeah, yeah. Mm, yeah, okay. One no. I get your reasons, Cam. I think we've uh, highlighted them pretty well in this episode. 
I wanted to really like this going into it. And there are bits I like. I think it's a good concept. I just think it's not executed as well as it could be. It gets more points because of John Malkovich and Helen Mirren and Morgan Freeman and a couple of other names. Ernest Borgnine as well in that list. And I think if those people weren't there, I think this would be a very forgettable affair. Yeah, I think so too. Like, I just don't know if there's enough on the page to take it to the next level. So you had to get that heavy star wattage to uh, probably get the attention and the money it got. Yeah, but it, it, it got it. It got a sequel. But for me, it's also a no... Uh, a lot to enjoy. It's one of those ones that I, I didn't have a bad time watching it. I don't think I could badmouth it too much. I did enough. But, Mm-mm. you know, I, I, I'm I going to butcher someone's... I think it was AJ Chowdhury who said this on the show a while back when we covered one of the Dean Martin films. But, you know, your mind works best like a parachute uh, when, when open. You know, like this, you just need to approach this with an open mind and just have a bit of fun with it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's not close worthy, unfortunately. But if someone's going to put red on and I'm there, I'd probably still watch it. I watched this back to back with um, Die Hard 2. And having this movie follow Die Hard 2, I was like, oh, oh, this is a come down. <laughs> this is a bit of a come down. <laughs> Very much a palate cleanse from Die Hard 2. Yeah. Like just watching like how effective the action is in Die Hard 2 and then mm. watching some of the stuff here. And I'm like, oh, yeah, we used to have it pretty good in the 90s. <laughs> oh, man. Those were the days. Yeah, Those yeah. really were the days. There you go, folks. Two no's. Red is not making the knock list. The dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Ooh-wee. We did it. Another Christmas movie in the bag. That's right. I know. There's only a few left, and there's a couple of heavy hitters. I mean, once you've tackled the favorites, The Package and Red, where else is there left to go in future Christmases? <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, we've also done The Long Kiss Goodnight on a Majesty's Secret Service. So yeah. we've had some heavy hitters as well. But there's there's a couple of ones left that are uh, often mentioned to us. One specifically. One huge one. And then one that Scott and I desperately want to do. <laughs> Yes, that I mean there was it was this film that we're not going to mention was very close to making uh, this year's pick. Yeah, very close. I'll just I'll give you a hint. There's an Uzi on the cover. <laughs> Merry Christmas <laughs> uh, to us all. But um, question goes to you, Cam. You know, we're in the season of giving. Uh, historically, we have uh, some interesting stuff over the New Year's period for everyone. But what have we got in the, everyone's stocking this year for Christmas? Yes, the holidays will be in full swing. So Scott and I will be taking a break from our normal programming. But that doesn't mean there won't be exciting Spy Hearts content. We are dropping a fantastic interview with writer Seth Lockhead about the 2011 spy thriller Hannah, a movie we are a huge fan of, and he takes us on a journey right from the kind of the origins of that story right through production. It is a absolutely fascinating interview for people who really love the movie Hannah like we do. Absolutely. It's a film we've spoken about ad infinite, and we always recommend people check it out. It's one of those unknown spy films that's actually on the knock list of things we recommend. And um, getting this opportunity to speak to Seth is something I've been trying to work out for quite some time. So I'm glad we finally got it together. And it, it, if you're a fan of Hannah or you're a budding screenwriter, it is a fantastic chat. And you'll learn a lot, not only about the film, but the process of getting a, a script made, what the, some of the obstacles you have to go through, because it really is his baby. He took it from concept uh, to delivery. 
and uh, it's definitely one to tune in for. So that will be coming out uh, next week, and then we'll be back in the new year with our usual uh, wrap-up episode looking at the best and the worst of 2023. That's right. So, folks, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to tune in next week for our wonderful chat with Mr. Seth Lockhead. We, of course, wish you all a wonderful Merry Christmas. Uh, we hope you have a wonderful festive season with friends and family and food and more. And uh, make sure to become a spy hard, die hard. Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't already, make sure you follow us discreetly, as always, on social media at SpyHards, that's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next time, folks, I never thought I'd have to say this again. I'm getting the pig. Mm-hmm.